Welcome to the Saturate Podcast. This is Duke Rivard, Executive Director of Soma and Saturate, along with Jeff Vanderstelt, Visionary Leader of Soma and Saturate. Uh, really excited today to be joined by some leaders from an organization that we've learned from for many years that we're really excited about. Uh, formerly called the Tampa Underground, I think now it's just called the Underground because it's expanded beyond Tampa. Uh, we're joined by uh, Jeremy Stevens and Tommy Wilkerson. Uh, welcome, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, no, we're excited to, to get some time together. And we'd love to just start by hearing from you guys, just even personally, professionally. Uh, maybe, yeah, both you, Jeremy and Tommy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Duke. Uh, I'll jump in, Tommy. Um, so I'm one of the original founders of The Underground. Basically, uh, 1996 came to Jesus in a varsity Christian fellowship and was part of that initial community that said there's there's this New Testament, there's the book of Acts, and we wanted to be those people, not just on the college campus, but in the world, in the inner city and globally. And and we just started walking that journey together, lived in community, almost like a little neo-monastic thing going on in, in the city, uh, in the poorest area of town, had our cars stolen and uh, was part of that original founding group that said, let's Let's intercede for the churches every Saturday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Let's like sing songs and pray the scriptures over the churches and the preachers and even the heretics at the time. And um, we just wanted to bless the churches in that way. And and then at some point we said, we, we got to do something that makes sense of our lives. The Sunday morning experience was so disconnected from what we read as the scriptures and what we understood missional life to be like and communal life and racial reconciliation, all that stuff, man. And so kind of, I was, you know, part of that, that group and that went to the Philippines and lived for nine months, was mentored by Filipino mentors on how to plant churches in the slums of Metro Manila. And that was really the the beginning of what we call the underground. So we, we've been a community for a long time, but we weren't called the underground until years later. And it was after that, that trip to Manila that we said, this is the name. This is our assignment. This is what we, this is what we're pulling together. Not just what we think, but our lives, the practices, the rhythms that God had allowed to emerge, with, you know, around us and in us. And um, and then since then, basically, I've just been the village idiot, just for the most part, you know. And uh, I'm kind of like the ex- the guinea pig upon which experiments are run. And then I say, hey, don't do this, or you could try a few things here. Yeah. I've discovered a few things. So for the most part, I'm just the, the, the experimental guinea pig here. I'm elder, um, within the underground community. I was, I was on staff for a number of years full time. I've I've alternated between bivocational, not working for the underground, but being integral and a huge part of it to, um, you know, to bivocational, like, you know, not getting paid to work with the underground, all that stuff back and forth. So uh, that, that's a little bit about me. I got four kids. They're all in high school. They're kind of smelly. Um, but I think that's normal. So it's okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Jeremy, yeah, and I've just enjoyed getting to know you over the past several years and eating, eating Greek food with you, talking life and ministry, and just hearing your heart 
for Jesus and the kingdom. So yeah, that's it's awesome to get get to do this with you, uh, Tommy. Yeah, we'd love to hear the same. Your your story, background, maybe role with uh, with the underground. Yeah, so I mean, Jeremy mentioned uh, coming to faith in university and being a part of this thing in '96. I mean, I came way later. I uh, got connected to the underground through university. It's the same in that way, but uh, in 2009. So the underground started officially in 2007. I became a Christian through the work of InterVarsity in 2009, uh, and through InterVarsity because it was a microchurch in the underground. Uh, I got connected that way, and so have been a part of the underground roughly since 2009, 2010. Uh, went on staff with InterVarsity shortly after graduating college. Um, you know, my wife and I we lived in the Cayman Islands for about six years, roughly, and I was doing InterVarsity work out there, starting student ministry. And then in 2018, we both moved back to Tampa. Um, Brian kind of convinced us to come back. And I've been working with the underground since then. And uh, in the last two years, it's been a journey. And now I am co-director of the Tampa movement here in, uh, yeah, here with the underground. So uh, we, my wife and I, we just had a baby not too long ago. So she turns four months this Saturday. Uh, yeah, my wife and I, we uh, lead a microchurch that's for young adults kind of in the throes of transition, trying to figure out how to be faithful to Jesus after you know college and maybe some of the early steps of professional life. And you know, aside from that, my wife and I are just doing our best to be the hands and feet of Jesus, well, to our neighbors, of course, but more specifically to our CrossFit gym. So that's a, a little bit of me. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, um, let's jump in. I would love just to, you know, you guys are are known for those that are paying attention to kind of the missional church planning movement and, and, and all the discipleship in the everyday. You guys are known for micro churches. Um, we just love just to level set at the start of the conversation. Maybe tell us what a micro church is and maybe the distinguishing marks. Yeah, um, I'll jump in. So a micro church for us is uh, something that is the ecclesial minimum, what we define as the ecclesial minimum, worship, community, and mission. When those three things are existing, we would say that that is the church, that is the people of God being a church, but it doesn't exist for itself. It exists for a reason. So kind of around the sense of worship, community, mission, it's for a purpose. And that's where we would we would locate the idea of calling, that there's a sense of like we, we've been called into the mission of God, the purposes of God in our city in a particular way. It could be a place, it could be a people, it could be a, a you know particular issue, you know. And, and there's different ways that that kind of will look over time. But man, if a microchurch is worship community mission for a reason, it, it, it tends to smell like Jesus. There, we don't have to motivate them. They just they just go for it. They try. They try to be the people of God, and and in the most general sense, that's that's it. You know, o- over time, we've we have noticed two different types of microchurches. Um, uh, one type being a specific mission microchurch, and the other type being a distributive mission microchurch. The specific mission is that everybody a part of that worshiping community is participating in the same mission. We are we exist as Mom Africana to mentor Black girls, and if you're going to be a part of that microchurch, you are joining that particular specific mission. Um, the distributive mission is the mission is distributive, so it, you know, kind of 
uh, every person or in pairs, it's like, we, you know, I feel like my calling is to reach my coworkers of my, this neighborhood or the, these soccer moms or this homeless population. And so everybody in that microchurch is identifying the missional space or sphere that they've been distributed to, but they still come back to a home base community, a worshiping community that acts like a home base for their missional endeavors. And so within those two types, there's like a thousand different expressions of what that really looks like um, and, and, and how they live into those types. But that's what we've observed over time that the worship community mission can express itself, um, you know, in, in those two different ways. That's interesting. As I hear that, I, I be, you know, my first thought is I wonder which ones are more effective um, and for what reasons and even what, what would be some examples of, of both, you know, um, in terms of accomplishing the purpose of God. Yeah. The, the type of effectiveness is different. Um, the overall effectiveness, I, I don't know. I'm not sure if we have the data for that, but the type of effectiveness, the specific mission tends to be much more narrow. Their growth rate is much lower, but their their impact is much deeper. For instance, you know, there have been laws in the state of Florida changed when it comes to human trafficking because of some of our microchurches. So they're literally changing the laws of Babylon for the kingdom, for the sake of Jesus and the kingdom. And they're not shy about it. They're not trying to like sneak around. They're saying, no, we exist for Jesus. <laughs> this is why. And, and so they're doing that, that work. But of course, they're still small. They're not growing. It's such a specific endeavor. It's such a specific assignment and testimony and witness. But, but they're not blowing up, you know. Um, versus a distributive microchurch, which tends to be much more broad. They tend to grow a little bit faster because, you know, they're in like, five, six, seven missional spheres. And so you see the growth rate is a little bit higher, but the impact, they're not going to change the laws of the land, you know? And so the impact is maybe not as deep. They're not going to shake systemic injustice in the, in the land because of, of what they're doing, but they will get into the, the workplace break room and testify to the goodness of Jesus and his kingdom in a way that's, that's very broad in general. And so they, they're effective in different ways. And what we found is that them actually knowing each other, they actually inspire each other. Uh, in our ecosystem, we, we find that the distributive leaders, they look at the specific microchurches and they go, oh, that's, that's the real Christians. They're over there like really laying down their lives for Jesus. And then the specific leaders are looking over and they're going, man, look at, look at all those people, man, they're just, see all that fruit they got. And, and it's like, and they're like, there's like a holy jealousy. Sometimes it's unholy, you know, humans, but, um, <laughs> but, but they inspire each other. And actually what happens is that they need each other. We found that there, there's probably a healthy ratio between specific microchurches and distributive microchurches. And when you get a little too much of one and not enough of the other, it, it really messes with the, really with the inspiration factor within, within our missional ecosystem. So th those are some of the general observations we've had. Um, I think Tommy, he might have some like more specifics of like modern day examples of those types of microchurches though. Yeah, I mean, we were talking types of microchurches. What I find fascinating is that even as we talk about types, similar to what Jeremy has mentioned, is that even within those types, the way that they can manifest their ecclesial minimums will look 
drastically different. So take a distributive type of microchurch. So I can think of two, and it's always, I feel like, important to mention more than one because, you know, we'll want to converge and say, all right, this is what uh, a distributive model microchurch must look like. And that's not necessarily true. So say one uh, example would be Central House. Uh, Central House is uh, man, they're a community of people who have somehow found each other, I think through homeschooling and together they are, uh, you know, having dinner together on Sunday nights. They love each other deeply. They're holding each other accountable to mission. There's Bible studies that they do. They help each other move and all the, they walk with each other through all the, the, the journeys of life. Um, and so that's one distributive model microchurch. Um, or distributive type of microchurch, but then similar to that is is Coro, which is actually the microchurch that Jeremy and his wife lead, and they're also distributive. But the way that they go about equipping their people, holding each other accountable to mission, is different. Then they, they it's a lot more peer coaching. It's working through the issues and troubleshooting. Okay, what are you coming up against as you're being involved in mission or engaging? the lost in your particular sphere and how can we learn from each other, which I think is really fascinating. Um, maybe on the more specific end of things, uh, Jeremy has also, uh, already mentioned a couple of uh, microchurches, mom Africana, you know, created, uh, but then, uh, I would say something like, um, you know, well built has been on my mind recently because I just think what they do is fascinating. So John D he's been a part of this community from I think its inception. Yeah, from the beginning. Yeah, and just has uh has loved the poor and has really kind of ingrained his life with them. And in the process of doing that, that has looked like, you know, feedings and uh opening up his house and saying, Hey, we don't really have money to give you, but if you need a place to shower or a place to wash your clothes, yep. our house is open to you. Uh, and more recently, what he has done is he's actually in the process of journeying with the poor, has launched a social enterprise uh, so that those who are without can actually earn a bike, recognizing that bikes are actually key transportation for the poor in our city. Uh, and so they can come into a shop, they can earn a bike. It's a way that they stay in relationship with the poor. Uh, and people, of course, can donate bikes, buy bikes from his store and uh just every year they come out with, um, I think, some sort of infographic of what they've been able to accomplish. And every time, it's just absolutely amazing. Um, and so that's one example. So, of- so and Tommy, he's interesting because he he really has, and him and his team you know, have that philosophy of that the kingdom transactions happen at the table. And so all these endeavors that he's gone about are just excuses to get to the table with people. To get to the table, so like the but the ride along, the earn a bike, the drop in center, or have just been excuses to get to the table with people because that's where the kingdom kind of transactions occur, and, that, and that's his missiology kind of driving a lot of that. But uh, but anyways, yeah. So it's, for him, it's not about making money or anything like that. It's like no, what's the current excuse that will allow us to have table fellowship? You know, so I just think he's. And when you say table, do you mean literally a meal together? Is that what you're talking about, or you, or is that more metaphorical? Well, I like mean a fellowship. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, for him, it's both. It is table often, but it's also a metaphor. Mm, mm. So I'm, I'm, 
I'm curious. That's soup, man. So good. I just love what I'm hearing. And I've learned a lot from you guys just from afar, but a little bit of time with you as well. But I, I am curious as how do you, how do you form, how do you help these get formed? Like, how do you walk alongside of leaders, help them discern their unique calling? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. Well, Tommy can talk a little bit about the environments, but in general, what our research has shown is that there's two initial conditions for somebody to hear a more specific calling. Um, The two two initial conditions are some kind of like um, Jesus as Lord, uh, disruptive, you know, from the status quo altar call. It's hard to describe, but it's this sense of like Jesus has got into your business He's disrupted whatever status quo faith you kind of come from, and he is Lord. And that, that, that's a journey, and, and there's like multiple types of spaces in which that can occur. The second initial condition is this place called lim, what we call liminality or like the threshold of pain. It's a, it's a divine encounter with either the pain of another or your own pain so that you have like an Isaiah 6 moment of, an, of like an undoing. And you might actually, the prayer life in that moment is very suffering-based. It's almost like WTF, God, why type of thing. And, and if you can faithfully walk through these brokenness and altar moments, and you could faithfully walk through this liminal space where all your Sunday school answers don't, aren't, aren't enough, what happens is that you, one way to put it is you gain ears to hear. And so people can as they then walk into spaces for listening prayer, they actually begin to hear uh, specificity to the general calling of love God and love people. They start, you know, they start locating it a little, sometimes it's not much, but it's a little more specific. It's a little more specific and they could start obeying towards that specific calling. Um, but, but we found that if you don't create environments for those initial conditions, then you don't hear a calling. And, and God himself is the one that actually takes people on that. He's the one that convicts people of sin. He's the one that undoes them. And he's the one that puts them back together. So ultimately, we don't take responsibility for that journey. Um, but we do take responsibility for how do we encourage and affirm and create and cultivate the environments in which that can take place. And, and Tommy could talk about some of the specifics behind how, how we try to create it without manipulating it, without taking ownership of the spirit's work, you know, but we do have a part to play uh, in that journey. And, and so, and sorry, the last thing is when people do hear a calling, then we create the spaces of permission so that they just obey it. Like we just say, man, sounds like you should obey what God is asking you to do. You know, is that church, is that worship community mission? And if they say yes to that question, we say, how can we help you? You know, and they may, they may not have any idea. They're like, I don't actually know. I just heard this calling last night. Oh, okay. Well, let's, you know, and then we get into coaching and you know, some of the concrete ways that we can help them. Um, but maybe, Tommy, maybe you want to uh, touch a little bit on how we maybe cultivate some of those environments. Yeah. So what I would say, kind of what to add on to what Jeremy has already said, is we would say a lot of those initial steps, those initial conditions happens kind of directly within the microchurch often is what we would say. Like as microchurch leaders, we're always challenging them to think about, okay, how am I cultivating these spaces and these environments 
within my microchurch so that people can hear some sort of calling so that we can partner with God and his work and, and all of that. Whereas the, the underground as uh, maybe an ecosystem, as a network, we uh, try to assist microchurches in what they can't do on their own because these are all small uh, ministries. They, they all operate um, with kind of limited means and resources. So whether that's a conference that's really devoted to encountering the love of God, whether that's uh, let's remove you from your current environment and drop you into the developing world. And instead of going in thinking that you're going to save or whatever, sir, you're, you're there to listen and you're there to, to intentionally be this place and to hear and learn from uh, the poor uh, and then maybe what's maybe been more popular, if uh, people are familiar with us, is the Calling Lab. The Calling Lab is a resource that we've put together that kind of looks at, you know, of course, your spiritual gifting, your uh, personality, looking at, you know, what have you been through? What's your life journey? What are the things that you're just raw passion? Like you, you encounter like certain injustices you encounter, you know, it's wrong, but it doesn't strike you the same way that this one does. What is that for you? What is the thing that, you know, when you, when you pray, these are the people that you pray first for that you will lose sleep over almost that, that Pauline, like, God, I I wish myself accursed on behalf of those people. Yes. Yes. That's what we're going for. And, and then listening for, you know, okay, there's all this, there's, there's data, there's input, but God, what actually ultimately calling, it's not about self-actualization or self-fulfillment. It's, it's preach it, preach. (laughs) Listening to what you have to say to me. So God, whatever that is, God, I am open to you. So there's an element of listening prayer. Um, there's an element of like listening from counsel, like people who know you and, and are unbiased who also want the kingdom. What do they have to say about that? Uh, and so that calling lab has been a really key resource for us and our community, uh, and helping people, you know, just have data points for, for their calling it. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy, were you going to Well, in? And Tommy, I think it's interesting because so as people do the calling lab, so we have that, but not everybody actually goes through it. It's like just having the calling lab produces that ingredient within the larger ecosystem so that even if somebody doesn't go through it, that those elements of listening prayer, those elements of uh, wise counsel, those elements of, God, wh- what are you asking of me? It just kind of are infused, even if somebody doesn't go through the program type of thing. And so I, I, it would be interesting. I'm not sure if we have the number on like what percentage of church leaders actually go through the calling lab, but it's always referenced as like, yeah, that's a, that's a thing that's influenced us, even though I never went through the program type of thing. I just always find that interesting. How often are you providing something like that? Those opportunities? Yeah, and in what so- ways? Yeah. So with the calling lab, it's a resource that we make available online. People even now can go online and participate at any given point, callinglab.com. Um, but, you know, occasionally, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year, we'll offer it as a network to uh, microchurches. We say microchurches, you have the full access to the curriculum. Feel free to run it with your people. Contextualize it however you need to. But as a network, we'll offer that thing maybe once a year. Um, that conference that's more about like the love of God and trying to create some sort of altar moment for people that usually happens about once a year. We've done that in different 
um, different frequency over the years. But uh, at least in our current iteration, aside from COVID, um, we, we've done it once a year. And then, uh, yeah, with liminal experiences, that really just kind of varies. Maybe once a year, maybe every other year um, from what I, I know. Yeah. But, but the, th- the theme of listening prayer is like, I would say, every environment we, we create. Um, like, like, for instance, like if, if – Jeff, if you were to come, I, Jeff, I think you're, you're like a level five communicator. You're like glowing with holiness and righteousness and stuff like that. When you speak, I just think, I just think you're amazing. And, and if you were to come to our, like a conference, a gathering of leaders or something like that, and you deliver your message and you do your thing and it, and it's, it's power, it's going to be powerful. And people are going to like learn so much and it's going to be a bit of a fire hose. Um, and at the same time, there's going to, it's going to drip with like grace and it's just going to be awesome. And, and, and we would get up on stage right after you get done and people are blown away. They're like, Oh my gosh, praise the Lord. And we would get up, we say, man, that's, thank you so much. Man, it's great to listen to Jeff, but it's actually better to listen to Jesus. Let's take five minutes now of silence. What is Jesus actually saying to you? That, that was, thank you so much, Jeff. You blessed us. We heard from him. But what is God actually asking of you? What is he saying to you? It's like even if in our best communicators, we would, we would definitely, and, and, so, and not to dishonor them, but we would just say, no, that was good, but it's, it's not it's not the king of the universe. So, so, so what is he saying to us? And so even, even in our, I mean, every environment is like that. Every communion, anytime we host communion, it's like, what is God saying? You know, let us listen to him. Let us respond to him. And so that does kind of incept all the leaders to where they start imitating that. So it's like a way to influence without controlling the microchurch leaders from the centralized leadership. Yeah, that's so huge. And it, and it nips so many things in the bud in terms of not doing copycat mission or comparison or, you know, the, yeah, what, what uh, Peter was doing with John, Jesus, right? He's like, hey, what are you doing over there with John? And, and Jesus is like, hey, don't worry about John. I'm doing something. I'm doing something with you. And I've got different things for different leaders and places and time and just love, love that. Uh, yeah, really, really good stuff. Um, yeah, I want to move us along just a little bit. I mean, one, one thing that our audience is really aware of is the idea of missional communities. Um, and we'd love to just talk a little bit about the contrast, like between missional communities and micro churches, what's, what relates and what maybe differs as that, as that goes. But, uh, even to level set that Jeff, uh, maybe just give us your current working definition of a missional community. And then we've heard already the definition of a micro church. We can just kind of riff for a bit on, uh, how they're similar, how they're different. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we would define a missional community as a family of servant missionaries who make disciples that make disciples in the everyday stuff of life. So family, they love one another because they've been loved by the Father. So they, they're they brothers and sisters. Servants, they see Jesus King. They worship him, not just in uh, song, but in practice by showing visible display of his, his kingship, his kingdom in the world. Uh, and then missionaries, they know they're sent as witnesses to give Jesus credit for everything and to call people to follow him. So that's the whole make disciples that make disciples. And in the everyday stuff of life, it's just learning how to walk it out in the rhythms of normal life. So uh, it's, not a, it's not a Sunday event. It's a people on mission together, loving each other, displaying the kingdom and proclaiming the king. So, Yeah, that's great. As, as we guys, as we think of both those definitions today, uh, what are some things that come up for you that seem really similar? I, I mean, all of it. I mean, we would, 
almost all of our microchurches would not be able to say it that well. I told you, Jeff is a level five communicator. He's awesome. So, so most, most of our microchurches, they would, they would say stuff. Um, and, and sometimes you'd be like, you kind of missed a few things, but if you observe them, you would say, Oh, okay. You live the thing. You are the thing. You know, and if they've been around long enough, they really is really better, isn't it? I mean, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, now Jesus was the best communicator of all, but he also you could just be with them and learn it. You didn't hate. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're okay with it. You know, sometimes I mean, I'm telling you, it's it's almost embarrassing. You know, we'll have visitors come in and microchurch leaders sit down, and people start asking, and these are like seminarians and they were trained and they've read lots of books and they know Greek. And so they ask our microchurches question, leaders questions, and they'll, they'll borderline say something heretical. They have no idea that it's heretical. <laughs> and, 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 and yet I'm like, you're not a hero. I know your life. I know who you are. You, you, you just, you mixed up your words, you know? And it's, it's such a, it's such an interesting dynamic when it's like, oh man, we put so much emphasis on being precise with our words, but our lives are a mess. Now I do want those leaders to grow in their words as well. You know, we need to watch our life and doctrine, you know, so it's like, okay, let's, uh, let's mature in all these ways. Uh, but, but you know, there's, there's just something about it where it's like, yeah, man, but you are, you are the thing, you know, you are the witness, you are the testimony to the grace of God in this kingdom. And, um, so, so, you know, Duke, back to your question, I would say the similarities are, I mean, it's regular everyday people living together, exalting Jesus as Lord, you know, loving one another, brother, sister, overlapping our lives and about his purposes, the Missio Dei being called in and alongside what he is doing. And again, there's, there's a thousand different ways that can exist. Um, which allows for all kinds of diversity within our network, missional diversity, ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, educational level diversity, you know, but, but at the same time you get around each other, you go, Oh, this smells like, smells like some Jesus stuff over here. The aroma of Christ is here um, type of thing. So I think for the most part, we would just say, Oh yeah. Worshiping community on mission, the, the Soma missional communities, those are microchurches. I mean, in in our definition, we would we would say, "Oh yeah, that's that's great." We how can we help them? We would love to serve them if they were in our city. We would we say, "How can we help you be the church you're called to be?" You know. I was I was going to say I think that's one difference is I think that you you guys really legitimize the the microchurch as a church. That's part of a network, and I think, and I'm not saying I don't believe this about missional communities because I believe they are the church too. But I think they many times they operate like they're they're under a covering of elders in a broader church, and so in a sense they can feel like a program of the church. That's not what we want at all. But I think the functional realities of it is often that way. Whereas you guys have the leadership inside the the, the micro church itself. We often have we have leadership in the MC, but they usually have elders overseeing them in the broader local church. So I think that is one difference. And I'm, I've been curious about that too, in terms of like how, how that works in terms of church discipline, uh, uh, the connectivity to each other. Cause like, okay, if one of them goes off the rails, who's responsible for them, you know, and how does that get handled? I'm just, that is a difference, but I'm curious about how you guys work that out. Yeah. This, this is where we may see some, it, 
we may diverge, but also maybe come back together here. One thing that we found interesting, again, in our research is that microchurches do not persevere without relationship with missionary peers. So the perseverance of a microchurch is totally connected to their relationship, not with the overall organization or not even with the other members of microchurches. It's the leader-to-leader rubbing of elbows, sharing of life, sharing of suffering. So when suffering comes, they look each other in the eye and they love one another. Um, That's huge. And so we would say every microchurch needs to have missionary peers or microchurch leader, at least leader. Sometimes there's more than one leader in a microchurch. Um, We would say you'd have to have missionary peers to be able to persevere the suffering that is to come. It is, it is going to happen. It's it's hundred percent promised. I guarantee it. You're going to want to quit. The devil's going to punch you in the mouth. And what are you going to do? And you're going to need that missionary peer at that point to be able to persevere because they're going to remind you of Jesus. They're going to remind you of your calling. And it's not a program or a video series or, or a preacher that actually gets you through it. It's a peer. And, and again, that's what our research kind of shows. So if that happens in a local context or local congregation, you know, that those peers feel responsible for each other at a particular level. Now, part of our ecosystem, like to get in our sandbox that we build to help people be the church they're called to be, come in, play in our sandbox and build whatever sandcastle God's calling you to build. Part of the agreement that binds us together is a covenant of leadership. The leaders covenant with one another, which, which part of that covenant is if there's a need for church discipline, you will submit to a governing set of elders. So we do have governing elders. They're not on staff with the organization, but there are governing elders who are kind of the leaders of leaders. And uh, they're the ones that act as like a board. So if there's church discipline or a theological controversy or something like that, they, they basically write epistles, modern day epistles, and give a ruling. Um, so if somebody, if a microchurch leader has an affair, the governing elders get involved. You know, if two microchurches start fighting one another, which has happened, um, you know, we have one okay, microchurch. Church? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we, bro, it was awesome. I mean, not awesome. Like, I was, <laughs> I was in the middle of it. I, it, it definitely stressed me out. Um, but, but we have one microchurch threatening to build down the burn down the building of another microchurch. It was, it was really a hot mess. Yeah, it was, it was like, I was like, this is literally violence, guys. This is not, you know, um, so it was, it was crazy, man. Um, you know, and, and so the governing elders have to get involved at that point. It was funny because each one of them, both microchurches were saying, I don't want to submit to the governing elders, but you need to go get them. They need to submit to you. And both of them were basically saying that about each other. And I was like, both y'all are out of submission and wrong. <laughs> it's like, I'm not ruling on the behalf of anybody. We, we as a governing body are basically saying both of you are in discipline. You know? There you go. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's anyway, encouraging. That's how that works. Tommy, I'm curious because uh, you, you're on the ground in Tampa. You've been doing this. You got the experience. It happened to you, but you're also leading. What does it look like to bring ongoing support then for these communities? Like coming alongside of them, what does that look like on the ground for you guys in Tampa? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's where our, you know, departments and services become uh, critical. So, I mean, you get a handful of, you know, small ministries, microchurches, people saying yes to Jesus on mission, and all of a sudden needs start to emerge, right? So, 
you know, everyone has a need for, you know, some sort of a, a printer, a paper cutter that's better than the one that they have at their house. They have needs for, uh, you know, I want to, I want to receive donations sometimes, but you know, how do I do that in a way that's legal and ethical without having to go through the whole hassle of paperwork and boards and 501c3 route and all of that. And so what we've tried to do is as a, as a organization is say, okay, well, we exist to help you be the church that God has called you to be. And so how can we do that? If that, so we have a, a media department where, you know, you don't have to worry about designing graphics or websites or posters or anything like that. You just go love people for Jesus. We'll take that for you uh, so that you can do that. Oh, you have uh, a payroll. You have, you actually have staff or you are receiving donations. You don't worry about having to keep your books. We will do that for you. That's what our finance department is, is, uh, is good at. They're good at keeping our micro churches out of jail. Um, for the most part, occasionally, you know, you have some who will, you know, get their hands in some protests and still might end up in some, some questionable circumstances, but for <laughs> reason, they are out of jail. Or, or want to build a, burn a building down or something like that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, we, they might go to jail for other reasons, but not for finances. Um, but, or say they do want to go the 501c3 route. That's what our finance department does. Uh, say there, as you do mission, you, it's very, very quickly, especially because, you know, as you release people, you're releasing them really kind of with an idea. They have an idea and sometimes they don't always have the clearest idea of what they're doing. And it's only a matter of time before they get in over their heads and they ask for help. And so that's what our coaching department exists for. It's, uh, you know, other microchurch leaders who maybe are just a little bit more experienced, a little bit further along, or just really good at asking questions and helping people come to their, uh, to the answer that they feel like the Lord is leading them to. Um, so that, and I think that's important to me to point out because we don't see coaching as mentoring. So like I, I've coached mom Africana, which disciples black women. And that's just weird. If I think I'm an expert, on mentoring black girls. That's just weird. So it's in, in, in inappropriate, but as a coach, I can ask questions and help them have a listening posture to the spirit. And, and I could totally do that in an appropriate way. If I see myself as, as just a coach who helps and serves and not as an expert who's mentoring, um, you know, so I think that's important. To you know, what's so to, great to you know, separate those. What I love about what you guys are sharing, though, because I, I feel like if I were just to kind of broaden this out and say, okay, how does this help the the average church? That maybe isn't quite where you guys are at on your convictions about microchurch, but I think one of the greatest gifts the church can give their people is to actually believe if they have, if they know Jesus and they have the Spirit and they've been gifted by God and they have a story and they have a calling, and your your job as a leader in the church is not to do ministry for them or even tell them how to what to do, but to join in with the work of Jesus. Just say, "You got Him. You've got the Spirit. Let, let me help you discern what He's doing." And my job here is to come alongside you. You're an expert at something I'm not, probably. So I just love the way it. It like values the body of Christ in ways. And oftentimes I feel like we diminish the priesthood so much uh, and have little confidence in Christ to do a, a powerful work in his people. So I just, man, it's so good to hear this. 
It's so good. Or Jeff, we have like 14 predetermined roles that we really need to pull off what we're doing. And we just try to plug people into those, you know? Yeah. This is our ministry. We need people. Will you come to do our work? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I have a sense from the Lord that he's calling you to do the thing I need done. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's weird, man. But this really puts leaders in the place of servants. Right, we're here to serve Jesus and His people. So, man, it's good. Yeah, no, there's a yeah, there's a lot of undertones of spiritual direction, like being sensitive to what the Spirit's up to with people, helping them discern. You know, yeah, the good work we've prepared in advance for them to do. Just yeah, really, really cool. Um, yeah, I want to transition just to. I mean, you guys have been at this. If I'm counting, uh, Tommy, you said you guys started in 2007, so 13 years at this officially. I know there were some years before that as well. Uh, what are some macro learnings? What are some things that you guys, you know, maybe even see differently than you did at the beginning, or or even more immediate, like stuff you're learning in COVID? But um, yeah, what what are learnings that you guys are coming to right now? Man. Um suffering is real like you'll want to quit um and that's uh that's coming for everybody that's coming for every leader division is the way of the enemy it is the way of the antichrist um and it's sneaky and you know this particular type of system is more vulnerable to um division there's more opportunities for it um, than, than in a strong, strongly aligned, unified system type of thing, you know, with a strong visionary leader who basically tells everybody what to do. Uh, you know, in this, in this thing, you know, division is a, is an ever present threat, you know? Um, and, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's not really all the stuff like heresy or church discipline that people are always asked, those type of questions we've only ever had to like remove a handful of microchurches over the, over so many years. I mean, it's just like almost really not an issue. Um, but the threat of division, the threat of, you know, seeing each other as enemies, um, especially nowadays, ever since 2016, seeing each other as enemies, that's ever present. So asking the questions of like, how do we find unity in Christ but still allow for the diversity of calling, the diversity of people, the diversity of his body. I mean, there's just so much of that in the metaphor of the body in Ephesians 4. But it's like, okay, in this present cultural moment, how do we live that out? That, that's, that's maybe the edge of our learning. We're on the edge of learning some of those things. Um, but, but those are the things that over time just have been emphasized more and more. If you hear to a lot of our messages, a lot of our messages are about suffering. When, when we speak to microchurch leaders, we talk a lot about suffering and pain and burden. Um, and that's, that's a theme. Um, but then when you get us together, there's a lot of laughter. So it's, it's a bit weird. It's like, it, it, you know, the messages resonate, but it's not like everybody's mopey and running around and crying all the time. Um, there's just a gravitas to the leaders, the gravitas to the people. They, they have tasted suffering, but there's still a calling. There's still joy. So I don't know if you want to comment on that, Tommy, just, you know, since the perspective of 2009, you know? Yeah. I mean, in general, 
kind of like you mentioned, times have changed so drastically, so quickly in the last few years that, you know, we're having to reevaluate the way that we talk about each other. I think, you know, the underground has always been, uh, you know, we talk about the diversity of mission and really the thing that keeps us together uh, and unified in a sense is our, is our manifesto in some ways. It's the, it's the heartbeat of our community. It's like, regardless if you are, you know, loving, uh, you know, single moms in this remote part of town, or if you're somebody who leads a distributive house, home-based, you know, microchurch, uh, regardless, you look at that manifesto and you say, this is my heartbeat. That's always been true of us. But I think what we're realizing now more and more is just the role of commitment and the importance of commitment keeping communities together. And not just like a one-time you know, spur of the moment, I'm inspired, I'm committing and vowing, but taking seasons, taking a season of time throughout the year to say, okay, we are actively reconsidering this commitment. And do you still want to be a part of this and willing to, you know, yeah, say, man, this is a, a new monastic community that we are trying to create here. And we understand that some people are going to be on board with that. We understand some people are not going to be on board with that, but almost intentionally having to make that high call again, because the way that the world is going and the polarized nature of the world around us, I mean, what it means to be prophetic now in this day and age is a refusal to see the other as an, an enemy. It's a refusal to, you know, walk away from each other because you're different or you see things differently. Uh, and not everybody wants to commit to that. So I think, uh, that's kind of the thing that we're, we're kind of learning and and reflecting on is yeah. Commitment and recommitment. Yeah, no, that's so good. Uh, I'm going to ask you to kind of go out on a limb a little bit, just in terms of your prediction of where the church is headed. I know some of the trends that we've seen, like a movement towards Bivo and more Covo, uh, vocational ministry. Uh, we've seen remote work. A lot of things get accelerated by COVID. But if you were, if, as you guys are looking out at the movement, you're looking out at COVID and everything that's come come down the line this year. Uh, what do you think shouldn't be assumed about the future of the church? What, what kind of differences or changes do you think are coming um, as we think about being the church in, in this kind of new new era? Yeah. Uh, you know, what I really, uh, kind of held on to in my mind there was the kind of the assumptions. And I do feel like even as things shift, there seems to be this assumption that it's going to shift to a static position. And I think that's a bad assumption. I think we need to continue to equip the church and be the church in every season, in every generation, which which in my mind, the way I interpret that is, it's, it's much more discerning seasonally. So bivo, covo, full-time staff, whatever, however we term these things, I think there needs just to be an understanding of seasons. Like there's a, there's a season in which, you know, we're going to have to be tent makers. And there's going to be a season where we're going to be sent out as full-time missionaries and we're going to travel the Mediterranean. And there's going to be a season when we're in Antioch. And you know what I'm saying? It's, it's just the, So if we assume that there's a, a shift towards a new static, I think that's a bad assumption. Um, 
you know, I feel like that's that's the gospel of certainty. And the only certainty I, I know that's promised to us is Jesus and his majesty, not necessarily a method or, uh, you know, le- even language about a thing. It's like we, we just think the underground is going to come and go. We think the underground has a death date. We don't know that date, but we know it's going to come and go. The language of microchurches will probably come and go, you know, and that's good. We think that's good if people are discerning into the next season. Um, so that that's just kind of what triggered off in my mind. Um, you know, th- yeah, I could be wrong. No, that's really good because, yeah, it does feel like some are waiting to go back to a static past and then maybe others are counting on a static future. And I, what I hear you saying, which I think is super helpful, Jeremy, is – Hey, maybe the past was never all that static. Maybe it was always seasons and there were things that were changing about your situation and the way that you operated at the church. Um, and yet Jesus hasn't changed. <laughs> He's the same yesterday and forever. And following him and listening to him and obeying is going to be the right thing, uh, however it takes shape and, and however that moves forward. So, yeah, that's that's, that's super helpful. Um well, if someone's listening, and I want to I want to close this down today, but if someone's listening and they want to know more about the underground, uh, maybe they want to be inspired, they want to look at how they might embody some of what you're about or, or connect with you in some way, uh, where would they go to, to learn more about the underground? Yeah, so I mean, I guess there's a variety of options, of course. Um, you know, part of what Jeremy has done, he and uh, his team, the Movements Department, they have, I mean, they are constantly receiving guests and giving them kind of the, uh, the tour, the rundown of the underground Tampa, talking with people through some of these ideas. And so right now I know what they've been doing is some of these online intensives, just talking through some of the DNA and structuring of, of the underground for people who are interested in starting similar types of, um, yeah, similar types of work in their, in their cities. Um, but then, of course, you know, there's the Underground Church book that you could always uh, read and check out. Brian wrote that on us. Um, you know, he also wrote a book recently on microchurches. And so if you're interested in that, that is also available to you. Um, but yeah, you're always welcome to come to Tampa. I mean, yeah, the, the two websites are undergroundnetwork.org and tampaunderground.com. And those basically are deep rabbit holes that will take you to all kinds of fun and adventurous places. Well, thank you guys so much for being with us today. I really appreciate you guys and your hearts uh, for Jesus, for the church, for his mission, and for just, yeah, being so available for us to, to learn today and for our audience. I know people are going to take away a lot from, from what you shared, and we'll just be excited about new, new opportunities we have in the future to partner any kind of work in gospel advance. Uh, to the Saturate audience, uh, thank you for listening. Yeah, I hope you've been inspired uh, in your own uh, way, in your context to more faithfully embody uh, listening to Jesus, obeying Jesus, being a disciple who makes disciples, however that looks for you, uh, as Jeremy said, in the season that you're in and the place that you're in. And so I will trust God that that's the case. But uh, thank you guys for being with us. Really, really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Duke. Thanks for being handsome. Appreciate that. I don't know if I could I could own that one, but thank you, brother, for, for being here. Jeff, thanks again for, for hosting with me, and uh, we'll look forward to, to next time. We'll, next month, we're going to focus on being with Jesus, which was actually a lot of what we ended up hearing from the underground, which is to say we shouldn't assume that disciples know how to be with Jesus. 
and to really commune with him deeply as the fountainhead of their discipleship, of their ministry. And so we'll get to double down on that with Adele Calhoun, who wrote the uh, the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. Uh, Jeff and I'll be riffing on that as well. And so we're just excited to, to get after that next time. But until then, um, yeah, I would pray that God blesses you in your ministry as you pursue Jesus and his mission.